Well, go ahead, grab your Bibles. If this is your first time, you, if you use a device, you can click on the ESV or the English Standard Version. That's what we use here. And you want to go to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be going through uh, verses 13 through 22. We're in week 11, going through our 1 Peter Holiness and Hope series. A friend of mine texted me the early hours of the morning, and he said, how are you feeling about this morning? And I said, like, what do you mean exactly by that? And he said, well, you know, the election and everything's going on. Like, what about what, about what it is that you're saying? I mean, are you, you feeling okay about that? And I said, well, I mean, I said, I, you know, I don't have like the post-election sermon that I prepared. I said, well, we're just going to be going through First Peter, and um, we're going to see what God's Word says, maybe in some of the ways that we can apply that to our lives, which is going to be amazing to see when we see the providence of God at work within the text that we just happen to be going through and where this lands uh, in this particular season for the church and for the nation. Um, so I'm looking forward to see what God has to say to us with all of these things bearing down on us. There are many, many fears right now, not only in our country, not only in our nation, our state, but really in this room, there are many fears. As we learned last week, the unique thing about the church is that there are many fears, but there is one faith. And we're going to learn uh, this morning that there is, there is one faith and there is one fate for those who hold to this faith and who have been declared righteous by God, even though we are, our status, our citizenship, as we've been learning in First Peter, is one of sojourners and exiles. Because, man, I'm telling you, it's been a week, am I right? I mean, come on. It's been a week. Um, unless you've just emerged from an underground bunker or think Facebook is just a clever new name for family photo albums, uh, you know, you've been experiencing some waves of just dizziness this week. So let me break some of the tension in the room this morning by acknowledging that some of you here have won the election, okay? Some of you here did not win the election, to put it in those terms. And at the risk of an empty church next week, let me share a couple of thoughts with you that I believe are very much in line with the passage that we're going to be going through this week through 1 Peter 3. And here's a couple thoughts. Number one, if you think everything is okay because your candidate won, let me get on your good side right now and tell you you're wrong. Okay? On the flip, if you believe everything's not okay because your candidate did not win, uh, well, you're wrong too. And just so I cover everyone in the room and make sure everybody is angry with me this morning, um, if you're just ambivalent, man, if you're one of these guys, it's like, man, I'm just so tired of hearing about it. I don't care. I want to move on. I don't care what this election has brought into the hearts of the people. You talk about all these fears. I don't have any. I'm over it. I'm past it. Well, you're wrong too. Does that cover all of us? <laughs> In, in the room this morning? Did I, I mean, I want, my goal is to offend everybody in the room this morning. That is one of the goals. Um, again, there are many, many fears, but one faith, and there's one fate for everyone who's been declared righteous by the blood of Christ. Keep that in mind as we go through these passages, because one of the principal truths, okay, and you guys know this as we've been going through 1 Peter, this sort of undergirds the book of 1 Peter, one of the principal truths is humility. Over and over again, Paul, Peter is calling us as a church, the churches he was writing to, he's calling them to a posture of humility. And with everything going on in our nation, the church needs to pray for a posture of humility with one another and with the world, right? Can I get an amen from that? Amen. 
Yeah, to count others more important, to be willing to listen. Remember last week when we talked about having unity of mind? Like this is one of those times for us to have unity of mind like we discussed last week. This is one of those moments when we come together as a people who have found forgiveness in the death and resurrection of Christ and need to remember like we just sang, I almost think in every song that we sang this morning, we got to remember that we are a blood-bought people because that's the truth that's going to sustain us and conform us deeper into the image of Christ in a world that is just spiraling outside of that image, right? So the title, again, of the message today is The Fate of the Righteous. The reason for that title is not because we had an election, but because Peter was writing to a group of Christians facing opposition who did not get a vote in any election. That was not how it was played out back in their times when they were made to be subject and subservient to an emperor. But they needed to know something just like we need to know. And what they needed to know, what we need to know, is that the fate of the church is secure because the blood of Christ has been shed. And it's this truth alone that gives us a guiltless conscience before God, which serves as a testimony to the resurrected hope that lies within. We just sang that when we opened up with, in Christ alone, our hope is found. So the question that we're going to be sort of cycling through today, the question is, will the church, will you, will us, me, will the church be faithful to this truth or be fearful in spite of this truth. If we believe living faithfully depends on who is in office, then we will live fearfully no matter who is in office. But the fate of the righteous is not and cannot be dependent on that ever. This morning, what we're going to see through this passage is that there's three important instructions for those who understand their future fate has been redeemed from fear and given over to faith. All right, everybody's still here. Everybody's still in the room. I made it through that introduction. Good. Let's read. We're going to pick up here. 1 Peter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 13. Peter says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. We're going to stop right there for now, and that's going to be our first point. And our first point, as we sift through this text, is simply this. Don't fear. Don't fear what God calls you not to fear. You guys hear me on that? Don't fear what God says not to to fear. Peter starts by posing the question in verse 13. He says, what is there to fear? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? And his point here is that having a zealousness or having a devotion for doing what is good, it usually doesn't end in harm for us. Having that desire and that devotion and that devoutedness for doing what is right before the Lord. But Peter puts a qualification in there really early on by saying, even if... He says, even if one suffers, don't miss those words, even if one suffers for doing good, you have the assurance or the blessing that God's grace will 
cover your life in ways that you may not have experienced otherwise. If there wouldn't have been any suffering, if there wouldn't have been a zealousness for doing what is good. Remember what Peter told us in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God when we suffer for doing what we know is right in obedience before him. So with all of that, Peter says, don't, don't fear. He says, don't fear them. Right there, he says it right there in, uh, at the end of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. It's interesting that he does not provide blueprints on how to escape opposition, right? Like he doesn't lay anything, of, he doesn't lay that out for us. He doesn't say, well, here's what you do. Here's some tricks that as soon as you're opposed, this is how you get around it. This is how you walk through it. This is how you try to manhandle your opposition. That's not what he says. Instead, we're told how to be in the midst of opposition, in the midst of suffering, which is this, to shift the focus of our hearts from fear to faith. And Peter describes faith as essentially what he says right here, honoring Christ the Lord as holy. That's his answer. That's his answer for when we are facing opposition, when things are starting to turn and circle around us in ways that we don't want to engage with, that we don't want to deal with, that causes much fear in our hearts. He says, honor the Christ the Lord. And so what he's doing is he's actually pulling this from a passage in Isaiah 8.13, which says this, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. And this is what the, the Isaiah passage continues to say. It says, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. You know what this calls into question for us? It calls this into question. Who do you believe controls your life? Who is it? Is it your opponents? Is it the people that's making you suffer? Is it your new president? Or is it the one in verse 22, if you jump to the end, who is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him? We're going to get to that verse in a few minutes. So, dude, this brings up a lot of implications, doesn't it? During a time when the church has seemed real confused about who they should be fearing and honoring as Lord. And what Peter's saying here is it's by honoring Christ as holy and set apart in our hearts that our fear of man, the natural tendency for us to fear what men might do to us turns to faith in God. Go back to verse chapter 1, verse 17, and he says, and if you call him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, he says, he's just repeating himself, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your four fathers. What good, listen, what good is having faith if when you experience opposition, you turn to fear to guide and direct you? The church should be asking themselves that question. The church should always be asking themselves that question. Is God not going to work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, which we read in Romans 8. 
Is that not true? When the world starts tilting and spinning, could it be that God is allowing opposition in your life personally, maybe in the life of the church corporately for the expressed purpose of transforming our hearts from fear to faith? Peter tells us in verse 17 that, in fact, if you look at verse 17, it is better. It's actually better to face opposition. It's better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will, we'll flesh that out in a second, because that is a bonkers statement right there. Then for doing evil is what he says. So listen, your goal as a Christian should not be doing everything you can to avoid the possibility of opposition or suffering. Opposition is not the greatest thing for the Christian to be feared. Regardless of whether your candidate won the election or not, no person has the ability to alleviate your fears if that's what you believe a candidate has the power to do. Ain't happening. What is true is that God is sovereign over every opposition we face. In fact, it's God's will for the church to face opposition because suffering for good is how God blesses those who live righteously in the throes of it. Does that make sense? In other words, when the world sees the way the church responds to opposition, they're able to see a picture of faith in Christ. They're able to see it even when you feel fearful. Even when you feel fearful, the way you respond to people in faith is going to look like faith to them over fear. My wife probably doesn't want me to talk about this, and I'm not going to get into all the different stories of it. But she has had a week where she has faced measures of opposition. Nobody in this room, all right, so let's just clear the air right now. None of you, right? This is, this is, a, this is a different uh, subtext of her life. But we were talking about this um, this morning, actually. And she has faced major opposition from some very key people in her life. And she's been battling sickness all week. And what's interesting about it is, as we've talked through these things, and more specifically, when we talked through these things this morning, I could see that there was such a fear in her. There was such a fear in her for the outcome of these events that have transpired and with the relationships with some people that she's had where there's disjointedness. And then we talked about some of the things that she was saying to these people people, to these people that are close to her. And what she was expressing to them, even in her fear, was faith at work in the midst of her fears. So what these people saw in her, even in her fear, was faith at work. It doesn't mean there was no fear there, but it meant that what she communicated to them was hope. And hope is the answer to all fear. When she looked at herself, she saw fear. But when they looked at her, they saw faithfulness in Christ in the midst of fearful and disjointed and ruined situations. 
So at what point does your faith look like faith instead of just one of the many beliefs that you hold to? At what point does that happen? Do you think God maybe wants to do something in you and in the life of the church so it just doesn't remain just one of these beliefs that we just like bumper sticker on the back of our car that we like buy the mug, you know, for Christmas? You know, he's the reason for the season. I mean, I mean when, does it like, when does it like go beyond just those things? Well, it doesn't have the chance to go beyond those things until something in your life hits to cause your fear to be challenged by the faith you claim to have. How else is it going to happen? Your faith will look like faith when it's put to the test. And what's interesting about that, and what Peter, we're going to read here in a second, says, is that it also leads to the opportunity to defend, to defend the hope. When people see Christians living out their faith, when the culture is against them, they see something that defies categorization. And I can't believe I just said that word without stuttering, because it looks really long on here. They see hope, because fear, fear is the destroyer of hope, but faith is the defense of it. What's exciting, all right, I'm kind of angsty right now, let's, let's just, let's acknowledge that. What's exciting is that the church now gets to be the church they're called to be. The church always gets to be what the church is called to be. What an opportunity now for the church to be what it's called to be. They get to not be fearful. They get to defend the hope they have inside, not because somebody made it or did not make it to the White House, but because God is on the throne regardless of who's in the White House, right? So Peter says, don't fear. Don't fear. And the next part, he says, defend, defend hope. Defend hope. Let's pick up 15b where he says this, he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter says, don't fear. And then he says, defend your hope. Defend the hope that you have inside. What gets missed many times when Christians face opposition of any kind is the opportunity they have to defend the reason for the hope that they have, for that very different and very true hope that they have. Again, Peter doesn't say stand up and defend yourself. You notice he doesn't say that? He says defend the reason for you hope. Opposition? is opportunity. That's what Peter's saying right here. And let's just not make this complicated, man. Because when it comes to defending the reason for the hope that lies within, we just make it really complicated. Peter simply says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope. Not 29 reasons. It's reason singular right there. One reason for the one hope. Right? Well, I don't know how to do that. I think you, I think you do. No, I don't, I really, no, 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 I, I think you do. Martin, I'm not sure that I can defend, no, this is how you do it. You tell anyone who asks that you've been, and again, you go back to 1 Peter, and you take them through 1 Peter. You take them through the last two months. You ask anyone who asks that, hey, I've been born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus, to an imperishable, undefiled inheritance 
You can say that because they're not your words, dude. You got that. Tell them how you were transformed and you were ransomed from your futile ways, not my words, those words, by the precious blood of Jesus, and that you have a faith and a hope that are now in God. How do you defend your faith? How do you give a reason for the hope? You open up to 1 Peter. You step people through 1 Peter and you tell them, that's me. That's the reason why I have hope. Sometimes, man, we are scared to speak up because we think we don't possess enough knowledge, right? I mean, Peter's not writing to a bunch of theologians here. He's writing to a bunch of regular Joes like us. Sorry if your name is Joe. It's just, it's, it's just the old phrase, right? But sometimes we're scared because we think we don't possess the knowledge. But here's something that can give us comfort. It's not our defense of the faith that changes anyone. We preach that constantly here. We open our mouths, the Holy Spirit does the work. Holy Spirit's going to do the work even if you don't open your mouth. So none of you ain't none of y'all responsible for sending anybody to hell. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit does the work. But he calls us to give a reason for the hope. Remember in Luke 7 when John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the Messiah. He says, brothers, go, go ask this guy. Make sure we got the right guy, is, is what he was sending his disciples off to talk to Jesus. Again, Jesus did not give them a 50-page exposition of the Old Testament. It was almost like Jesus was saying, look, man, I don't have time for this, so this is what I need you to do. I need you to go back to your boy John and basically say, hey, tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, just simple things like that. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus sends them back to John, just, just say that. Just tell them what you've seen. Tell them what has been transformed in your life and in your heart. Tell people how God's story of redemption has invaded your heart and changed your life. Here's what's a really poor defense of the faith. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. I mean, that doesn't help anybody, right? You've seen those bumper stickers, right? And you're like, yeah, I, don't, I, don't know what you, I really don't even know what you're talking about right there, brother. Tell them what Jesus has done. Tell them what Jesus has done. That's a defense. That's for the reason, for the hope that lies within. Because you know what God does when you use the words of Scripture to declare what Jesus has done in your heart? It's like preaching. And that's what God uses to transform people's hearts. In Romans 10, uh, Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If you open up to 1 Peter to give the reason for your hope, those are the words of Christ. And it could be that God uses those words, which happen to be his words, to uh, begin a faith in somebody from the hearing of it. And then he goes on to say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So after 1 Peter, you can remember Romans 10 because I just told you to remember Romans 10. And then it goes on to say, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There's a reason. There's one reason out of a quadrillion, I don't even know if that's a number, uh, reasons for the hope that lies within. Right there. Why are we going through 1 Peter? Because it's just a nice, cute, short book. No, because 1 Peter gives us a reason for the hope. It presents us with a defense 
for the hope. You know who else you need to defend yourself with that hope? Is yourself. You need to defend yourself against the cynicism that so naturally invades your heart. So we need to give ourselves a reason for the hope that we allegedly believe. And then he says, you got to watch your tone when you're doing this, brothers and sisters. Do it with gentleness and respect. Do it in a way that is gentle and respectful and is not so willing to get like a Louisville slugger, right, and, and pretend that it's like, you know, bottom of the ninth, you know, I'm going to use some baseball term and mess it up, so I'm done right there. Pretend bases are loaded, bottom of the ninth, get, you know, get that last game that happened that everybody's still crying about out of your head, and just pretend like that's not how you want to share and defend your faith, okay? You want to do it with gentleness and respect. Man, I've had some evangelism bloopers, just so you guys know, man. If they, if they ever showed a highlight reel... Oh my gosh, it's out of control. It's a miracle that God has used me to save anybody, right? I remember this one time, and I, I would love to be able to say, you know, like 12 years ago. This was only a few years ago, okay? But I remember, I remember this one time, God gave me some back-to-back -back opportunities to share my faith. And, um, dude, it was so bad. Um, I mean, I literally... I mean, I literally sounded like I was holding, you know, a gun to their heads with one hand and, and like shouting out orders to God like I was in a hostage situation, you know, on the other side of it, right? I mean, it was just, it, it, was, it was literally, in, it was like, God, I, I, I need 20 million in unmarked bills, two salvations, and you have one hour, right? It was like, that's how I was almost like laying it out. Like everything was dependent on what I was saying, not giving them any time to speak. Well, yeah, but what? No, 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 let me just keep defending, defending. But, you know, after a while, my defense didn't sound very reasonable or very hopeful, right? Um, I was clearly not believing that the Holy Spirit was the one in charge. I thought I was lending him a hand just in case he was having an off day, right? The reason why gentleness and respect right now, the reason why it matters is because it shames those who despise our good behavior, right? Your good conscience before the Lord might shame those who slander you if you defend the reason for the hope with behavior that shows the character of Christ, which we talked about last week. And then, oddly enough, because of this, he says there at the, in verse 17, it's actually better then. To, to be able to defend your hope, it's actually better then to suffer for doing good than evil if God allows it. And you read that and you go, um, What? What do you mean if God allows it? Well, God allows us to face opposition. I mean, there is the question that we always have to be asking, which is not necessarily, what have I done to call all this suffering and opposition on myself, but why is God allowing this opposition and this suffering to descend upon me? Because it clearly says right here that if God should allow it, then it is better to suffer while being obedient, while living a righteous life, understanding that God is going to bless us because our suffering is precious in his sight. And he's doing something inside of us as we defend that hope. He's enlarging that hope as we defend that hope as we're, oppo as we're being opposed. That's what God is doing. So he says, don't fear. He says, defend hope. And then point three, what we're going to see here is we're going to see Peter basically rehearsing the steps 
of salvation. We need to rehearse the salvation process in our lives daily. I mean, I was going to say hourly, but I know that's not realistic. Rehearse, rehearse the steps of your salvation. Jerry Bridges said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. That's what this means. Let's pick up in verse 18. I'm going to read to the end. He says this. He brings them back. He brings them back to that hope that eradicates fear. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then 21, he says, baptism now, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Preparing to make a defense of your hope is rehearsing what that hope is. And what you see right here in the first part of this, in, in verse uh, 18, you see the heart of the gospel just laid out here. And I'm going to use a big word here because what uh, Peter says here is what's traditionally called penal substitutionary atonement. Please don't make me say that like too many more times during the course of this message. Um, if you don't know what to say about Jesus, Here's something else you can say about Jesus. And this is all it means here when you go to the top of verse 18. It means that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. That's where the word penal comes from. Christ suffered for our sins. As a substitute in our place. That's what it means when he says the righteous for the unrighteous. He was substitutionary. And then it was all to loosen the grip of sin in our lives and bring us into right standing with God. That's what we mean when we say atonement, that he might bring us to God. So those are the steps that Jesus took for our salvation. And then, of course, it's followed by uh, what Peter draws out, which admittedly is, is a bizarre at first parallel uh, between the effect this had on people in Noah's day, all right, and in Peter's day, right? So here's the main point. Peter is making as we very quickly unpack verses 19 or 20, because it, again, it's beginning, you know, if you read verses 19 or 20, it can just start sounding like, whatever, you know, the description for like a new Harry Potter movie, if you're not careful, right? Fantastic Beasts, you know, they're going verse 19 and 20 with this. That's not what's happening. Basically what Peter's saying, his overarching point is this, Jesus suffered once as one righteous man for the sins of many unrighteous people, so that we might be alive like Christ and brought near to God. But we symbolize this death to life conversion through baptism, of which we find a counterpart in the flood of Noah. So here's what he's saying. In the same way that God's truth was preached to us, that same truth was preached and proclaimed through Noah to those people of his day um, who were held captive to sin while the ark was being built. Remember, that ark was a 120-year process before God was going to judge the earth for their sin. What eventually happened was that eight people, happened to be Noah's family, eight people responded to God's grace through Noah's preaching and were saved in the ark from the floodwater of God's wrath. And so what Peter's doing here, all he's doing here, he's drawing a parallel here between the flood and baptism, which he says doesn't save in and of itself, but it represents the cleansing of our guilty consciences through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So baptism is like an appeal is what he's saying. Or it's like a pledge that God has indeed removed his wrath that will come upon all of those like the people in Noah's day who don't heed the preaching and the call of God, which is to repent and believe the gospel. That's what he's aiming at here in 19 and 20. So baptism is a sign of the assurance that we have in the gospel. And it reminds us of what our fate once was before God saved us like he saved Noah and his family from the flood of his wrath. So Peter's readers, they could draw some parallels. They were familiar with this story. They could draw some parallels between the days of Noah and their own days, which was this, to hold fast to God in a culture that doesn't know God. Because if you know anything about the story of Noah, is he lived in a very wicked, evil culture that God was about to judge. And Peter's readers would understand that they were living in that same culture. But what Peter was saying is, don't fear, but instead defend the hope that is in you as you rehearse the salvation that is now yours due to Christ's suffering and resurrection. Listen, God destroyed the world and saved eight people because they put their faith in him. Do we serve a different God today? We don't. The same God who says, don't fear or be troubled, but give an answer to those who oppose you for the hope in you is the same God who saved you from the flood of his wrath. It's the same God. Romans 8, again, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also be with him who graciously gives us all things? In this this perfectly aligns with verse 22, which I'll read again, which says, Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Does that not play into everything that's going on in the fears and the hopes and the dreams and the dashed hopes and the dashed dreams that many of us in this country, in this church, in this town, in this state, are reeling from? Does that not give us the answer right there? You know what Peter is saying the answer is? Very simply, I don't have three points, I have one point this morning. You can send me a card later on in the week and thank me for that. Here's the one point that we have this morning. Believe the resurrection. Believe the resurrection. A man was raised from the dead. A man that we believe and affirm was God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. All things, he says, are subject to Jesus. Do you think that there's something larger than this to affect your reality? Why do we think that? Why do we think that? But Ronnie, that doesn't change the government or policies or laws. I don't know why I got that voice. It actually does. It actually does. It changes the hearts of men and women who make the policies and laws, which is why we're called to pray for our elected leaders. You know who else it changes? It also changes those who are under and, and being commanded to be subject to those authorities that God has placed over us. It, it, also, it also changes us, right? Believe the resurrection. Believe the risen Jesus. Put your hope in the one who ascended to heaven 
is at the right hand of God and has all angels, authorities, and powers subject to Him. Amen. Our faith should never be dependent on who won or who didn't win an election. Listen. Elections are only your fate if the resurrection is not your future. The fate of the righteous is that Jesus has brought us near to God. That's the fate of the righteous. The fate of the righteous is the absence of fear in the midst of opposition. The fate of the righteous is a testimony of hope defended to those who are in opposition of God. The fate of the righteous is the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account so that we might live in faith because the fear Killing love of Jesus has given us an undefiled inheritance. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that death, pain, suffering, the doubts that permeate this room, the fear that permeates this congregation, the worry that permeates this congregation will all come to an end because they were killed on the cross. The church has so much hope right now for what God will do in us and through us because of these times. Opposition is opportunity for the church to be unified under the blood of Christ. Believe the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help to believe the resurrection. We need your help to live like a church that is not living under the fear that the cross has delivered us from. Lord, our faith is weak many times, and so we come before you and we pray to you, Lord, that you would strengthen us. You would strengthen us in these times that we find ourselves so much uncertainty in the world that we live in. But Lord, there's nothing uncertain about you. You are unchangeable. And your salvation is immovable. And so Lord, we thank you and we acknowledge, Lord, that we don't live out this amazing grace that you have given us. But we pray that you would help us to do that in our weakness so that people might see us as a people that are moved by faith in Christ rather than fear of man. Help us to do this. Help us to be a light in a dark place. Help us to defend the reason for the hope that we have. Give us opportunities, Lord, as we find ourselves in situations that might allow us to speak well of you. Lord, give us the words we need in those moments, Lord, as we're scared. And give us that confidence that we have that is only there because the blood of Christ has changed us. We are not as we were. We will be with you one day, and it's that hope that drives us to live fearless lives, to defend the hope we have and rehearse the gospel that is ever present in our hearts. So, Lord, we pray for these things, and we thank you, Lord, that you are good and that you are working in us as a church. We pray these things in your name. Amen.